Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our August 2021 product event, where you'll hear from Brett Allred. Brett is currently the Chief Product Officer at MX. Brett will be discussing the hidden vectors of delight that can be found throughout your product design. These moments identify when your customers are at their happiest and are most willing to leave a positive review or engage with a new product feature or product. Brett will discuss how you can unlock these vectors of delight within your products. A big thanks to Lucid for sponsoring this meetup. So now, let's hear Brett's talk, Design with Vectors of Delight, Using Customer Emotion to Gain Sentiment. Welcome to MX. We are a mission-driven company and our values are really important to me. And I'm not gonna go through all the values, but there is one that I would like to talk about just for a second, and that's having an exuberance for life. It's a value that's important to us. It's a value that's important to me. And one of the things about exuberance is finding the things that you're really passionate about. What gets you up early? What keeps you up late? And where is that drive to do something great. And this can be in all facets. This can be uh, in sports, it can be in work, it can be in, in reading, it can be in all areas. But for me, one of the things that's really important and that I get passionate about is how do we create products that elicit a positive emotional response in our users? So I wanna to talk today a little bit about designing with vectors of delight. So when we think about user delight, what is it that delights a user? And when I think about that, for me, it's really referring to any emotional effect that a user may have. What is a positive emotional response that we have with the applications that we use? Because technology and machines can become sterile if we allow them to be. But if we think about an emotional response that a user is having with a machine, there can actually be a very great relationship that is formed. Now that may sound a little bit crazy, but I wanna tell you an example from the other day. Uh, I recently got conned into buying a rowing machine. If you've ever been on Instagram, I love following Instagram and all of a sudden, I don't know what it is, like these rowing machines keep appearing in my feed. And if they don't appear in your feed, they're going to now because your phone just heard me talk about the hydro rower. And this afternoon you're gonna see rowers in your feed. So just be prepared for that. But I, I saw these rowing machines and I thought, you know what, I want to get, I'm going to buy one and I want to get off the treadmill. Uh, I want to try this machine. So I, I ordered one and I started learning how to row. I have an Apple watch and I've been using this to track my fitness and try to get a little more healthy, be in shape. And so when I go down on my rowing machine, I'll go into the workout app and I'll click on the rower and then it will start a timer and then I'll start my 10 to 15 minute row. And usually what I'm looking for in this app is really the heart rate monitoring. And I'm trying to keep my heart rate within like 130 to 140 beats per minute, because lower threshold to get a good cardio workout. Last week, I go down and I, I'm just in like the habit now of rowing and I went down and I got on the machine and I start going and about five minutes in, I realized I had never set my timer, my watch, and I wasn't tracking my heart rate. And I'm like, oh crap. And I feel like I like wasted the effort if it's not being tracked, it doesn't count or something. So I, I paused for a minute, I, I clicked on the watch, I go to the rowing app and I hit open. And when I hit open, it showed four minutes and 33 seconds. 
average heart rate was 132. And I had this moment just for a second where it was like, that is awesome. And I like, was like, great. I didn't lose, I, this effort didn't go to waste. And the fact that the, the application was smart and to identify that I was doing this motion over and over again, in the background, pick that up, start tracking it just in case I wanted to save that data, it knew. And that moment created a very uh, emotional, it was, it was a small, but it was a positive emotional response. And we at MX call those moments vectors of delight. And what can we do to create vectors of delight in the applications that we... So I talked to some coworkers and I was asking them about different applications that they use that they've had these positive emotional responses with. And one of them was trail forks. Just by a show of hands, anybody do biking or running and, and use trail forks? Okay, a couple people. So trail forks is this really cool application if you wanna do mountain biking or you want to do trail running, uh, motorcycling, actually dirt biking. You can go on there and you can see all of these trails across the Wasatch Front. And they have a really cool feature on there that's a heat map that will show you in real time how many people are on that trail. If you're gonna go mountain biking, maybe don't go to the red trail because there's a lot of people on it and it's gonna be a little bit frustrating, okay? Uh, then they also have some tracking mechanisms in there that you can hit track my ride and it will tell you elevation gain, average speed, it will run some analytics and it's a really cool application and it's very popular for that community. On the other hand, there's this application called Strava which does a lot of the similar things, but in a different way. It's much more social. If you wanna go on a run and then share it with your friends, Strava is really optimized for this social aspect. But there's this real friction between, do I use Strava or do I use trail forks? Because they have different abilities in each of them. And so something that they did recently that uh, as I was interviewing a few people about uh, applications that surfaced up these positive emotional responses was the fact that Trail Forks does an integration with Strava now so that you can start your ride in Strava and you can share it with your friends and it syncs everything to Trails for, Trail Forks and vice versa. And it was a really cool example of two companies working together to create user delight instead of just build everything themselves. It was, much, it was done much more in the spirit of collaboration, which I thought was really cool, the fact that they would do this together. And it wasn't just a winner takes all type of a mentality. We're gonna build everything. It was very much done in the spirit of collaboration and it was done for the benefit of the user. What's going to be best for them? So the third one, any YouTube music users in here? No, okay, if you're, okay, one right here. Use YouTube music, this is awesome. So I love, speaking of exuberance for life, I like to go boating. Um, and one of my favorite places in the world is Lake Powell. And if you've ever gone to Lake Powell, you know that, uh, there's not really great phone service down in Lake Powell and there's definitely not 5G or 4G service down there. But when you're out on the boat, you wanna sync up your phone to the Bluetooth stereo and listen to music while you're surfing or you're wakeboarding, uh, tubing, whatever it is you may do. And we were out there earlier this year and uh, someone hey, turn on some music. And I'm like, oh, I haven't downloaded any music and I know that there's not service on here. So I open up the application and it says, it looks like you're offline. Do you want to go to your downloads? So I click go to the downloads and there's this auto download section or they call it the offline mixtape. And what they'll do is they'll take all of the music that you're listening to and they build an automated playlist 
that's downloaded in the background so you're never left without your music. And in that moment when I was on the lake and I wanted to have music, but I really, I didn't think I had anything downloaded to go and see, wow, there's a whole playlist of music that I can listen to and it's music that I like is one of those moments where we had a positive emotional response. It was really awesome. And it was a it's seemingly small thing, but very beneficial for me as the user and my relationship with the application. So I'm gonna ask anybody, I think we have a little throw around. Given that frame, is there anybody that wants to share? We'll just take one of them. Anybody that has an experience with an emotion, uh, with a uh, application that they'd like to share? Something that they were using and it was maybe a seemingly small experience, but you were like, wow, that's awesome. So every summer we make a trip down to Oceanside and part of that is after the second leg of driving six hours, we have to drop everything off and instead of enjoying the beach from four o'clock on, we have to go to the grocery store and spend a few hours to get groceries for the week. Last couple of years, we used the Walmart app to get our groceries. Two years ago, we had it for the first time delivered. And that was amazing because we didn't have to spend three to four hours wasting our time and our money that we put to enjoy the trip. Even better, this year, we went into our order history. It pulled up what we ordered. We added it to the cart and made a couple adjustments. And two minutes later, we paid and we had our groceries delivered and brought into our, the beach house. So that was pretty amazing. That is awesome. And I love that example because you think about this huge innovation with online grocery ordering, and this is a massive thing. But the thing that brought the most delight was actually a seemingly like technologically simple feature. Here was your order history from the last time. Reorder has everything that they want, especially in the situation, if I get the story right, for this trip, we're going to the beach. Let me add a few little things. And thank you, that was awesome. Now I get to spend time at the beach with my family. I, and that's awesome. So great example of a, a vector of delight. So one of the things that I've experienced when we come to presentations like this, we see these cool concepts, we see what companies are doing to create great experiences. They're identifying things that are gonna really uh, impact users and make them happy with the application. But then we go back to work and if our job is to design software or to, to build software, or if we're a product manager and, and we've got to come up with some of these ideas, is how do I design for these type of positive emotional responses, for these vectors of delight? And to go into that, there's a model that I think is really uh, helpful to get started. And I, I'm a big believer in models as a way, mental models and, and models like we're going to share with you as a way to get started. And if you're a student of models, you can begin here. And then as you learn more about them, you can create your own system. But back in the, in the mid 1900s, there was a psych, uh, psychologist named Abraham Maslow. And I'm assuming all of you have seen this, uh, but as a real quick introduction, Abraham Maslow was a very unique person when it comes to psychology, because most psychologists are really interested in digging into what is wrong with you. And they go into the negative aspect of the human experience. They're, they're looking at depression, anxiety, maybe suicides, uh, relational issues, and it can get very dark. And uh, if you've ever studied Freud, um, I think you definitely know that. Maslow was different. He was saying, I want to go study people that are healthy, that are living great lives. And I'm very interested in 
what is an optimal experience? How do peak experiences surface in people's lives? Because I'm seeing these people out there, him being one of them, uh, one of them that have moments of peak experiences where they have all of this great emotional response to life. And as uh, Mihaly Chizetnihai, another uh, psychologist, talks about flow. And we've, I think we've been in that where oftentimes the surface is when you're, maybe when you're working or you're doing some activity and you look up and like five hours has passed and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. It feels like two minutes. That's like optimal experience. Uh, and what Abraham Maslow called peak experience. So he was really interested, well, how do we help people get into these peak experiences? And what he ended up finding was that a self-actualizing person is more likely to have these peak experiences than the average person. So he pushes, he put this uh, hierarchy together to say, what does it take to become a self-actualizing person and allow you to have peak experiences? So he starts with the bottom and he says, really the way that human nature works is that we have physiological needs and that is the base thing. We have to have food, we have to have water, we have to have sleep. And if we don't have those things, nothing else matters. If you haven't had a drink in three days, there's nothing else in your life that matters than getting water, okay? But once we have that, uh, if you've ever, uh, just a side note, go look at uh, hedonic treadmills. Once you get something, the nature of our experience is that we want more. And so he identified what it is the more that we want. So he said, after we have our physiological needs, we'll move up to safety. Once we feel like we're safe, and we have our physiological needs met. Now we want to have relationships. We want to have friends. Uh, we want to have lovers. We want to have these intimate relationships. And that's really important to us. But once we get there, now we need to feel like we are uh, accomplished. We want to have a sense of prestige. And once we get that, our self-esteem is fulfilled. Then we get to this world of self-actualization where we're realizing our full potential. And in that moment, when you get to that point of self-actualization, the tendency is to have these peak experiences. So a pretty good mental model but for a lot of different things, but we're here to talk about product. So we could dissect this and we could say, how does this relate to product and have a pr pretty good dialogue? I'm gonna cheat here for a minute and use the research of a gentleman by the name of Aaron uh, Walter, who took this model, but he said, we want to design for emotional experiences. We want to design for these positive experiences, but there still is a hierarchy of needs in the applications that you create. And at the base, the application needs to function. If we get in and it just doesn't work, like we're done. It doesn't matter how good the user interface is, how cool the animations are, uh, how much work has gone into user feedback. If the thing doesn't, then we're at the base right? It doesn't matter if we're designing for vectors of delight if it doesn't work. So once we have a functional application, we move up to the next level and that's reliability. Is it reliable? Does it work time and time again? Can I rely on it? And once we find an application that we can rely on, then we can start worrying about like how usable is it? What is usability? And then he gets up to pleasurable. Um, I don't necessarily like, love the term pleasurable because I think I, I more think of emotional response because there's different responses that we want people to feel and it's not always pleasure. So he says pleasurable. Sometimes people say delight. I'm more looking at the emotion and because we deal with financial management, 
there are a lot of emotions that come with your finances. I think we've all experienced the highs and the lows of managing our money. And so we've got to be careful when we talk about the emotions that it's not all just sunshine and rainbows. Really, we got to be careful there. It's a pleasurable, that's his model. I'm more looking for what's the emotion I'm trying to elicit. So we take this and I want to apply it to uh, a scenario that we've done at MX. We create a wide variety of financial applications, one of which is mobile banking. So think to whoever you bank with, you get on your phone and you open up your mobile banking experience. And what we're looking for are what are the things that we could do in the mobile experience that would really surface these vectors of delight, these positive emotional experiences. And so where we decided to start was just in user reviews in App Store across all mobile banking applications. And we sucked all this data in, we processed it, we looked, we did some uh, uh, sentiment analysis on it uh, so we, and used some machine learning to process it. But then we also just spent the time to read the reviews, like thousands of reviews. And one of the things that we found, th thinking back to that uh, pyramid, is that one thing that was not very reliable was remote deposit capture. Think about, you get a check, I know checks are fading, but we still get checks every once in a while. We don't wanna take them down to the bank. It takes a ton of time. So how, I just wanna take a picture of it. And that's some technology that had come out and people were using, but it was functional, not very reliable. So we start digging in and over, we're hearing responses about remote deposit capture. Now, one thing in re reading reviews that I've learned, I don't give personally, I don't really give reviews on applications or on products very often. And I just wanna, I'm just gonna like try this just by raise of hands. How many people have given a review of an app or a product in the last 30 days? Just raise your hand. Okay, so we've got like four, okay? So I think it's important when you read a review that you don't think, oh, just one person said this. If one person actually took the time to open up the application, go to the review place, pick a number of stars, type out a paragraph, there's probably 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people behind them that have the same experience, but are like me and are just too lazy to give the feedback. So when you see these reviews, take them seriously. And it's really tough to, to decide, hey, is this just the one or is this the many? So definitely when you see something mentioned twice or three times or four times, take it seriously because that, that probably does actually represent a pretty good cohort of the application users. So in that, we, we dove into remote deposit capture. And here's a few things that we found that the industry average from remote deposit failure rates was 14%. We would see this as high as 20 or maybe even 25%, like one out of four or one out of five checks that were trying to be captured were failing. Definitely not reliable. So we continue to dive in the data and obviously being a data-driven company, this is important to us. We found that about a quarter of them, 25% of the time, that the user had a typo on the check amount. The check said $100, they put $101, why they would do that, I don't know. But about a quarter of the time they were doing that. Another 25% of the time, we were finding that they would take the picture and people aren't really that good at taking pictures. Now, some people are, but 
especially taking pictures of checks. They would get a blurry photo and the machine couldn't process a blurry photo. <laughs> then another, you know, 20% of the time, people would take the picture of the front and the back. They would actually take two pictures of the same side. So there's a problem. Uh, and then another 10% of the time we saw that the check was not endorsed. And those are the major categories that we saw. So we put on our engineering brains and we said, all right, we're going to go fix this. And we're going to really design for user delight. And we're going to make it so good. The users are going to love it. And we came up with this innovation that instead of taking a picture, we would actually use not the camera, but we would use the video camera. And we would, a video camera is recording at like 30 frames per second. So we could get in one second, 30 images in that second, and if we let it run for two seconds, we could actually get 60 images. And then we could use some machine learning and some neural networks to, to choose what is the optimal image, and then we could submit that. And we thought, if we just automated this for the user, this would be awesome. They just hold it up there, we do all this processing, because we're processing it on the machine through this neural net, we can tell them if they got the wrong side, and we could tell them flip it over, uh, if it was uh, too blurry, they didn't even have to worry because now we had 60 images and surely one of them would be right. And so we launched this and this was our first iteration. Let's see if the screen will change. And we were stoked about this, like user delight. And what we found in iteration one, that our success rate was through the roof, right? Almost every single check, we were like 99% success rate in using this model. It was very high. But when we released it, we put it out there. We're so excited. We're waiting for all this good, positive feedback. And what we, what we measured as our anger rate went through the roof. People were really frustrated. And that's hard because now we're seeing the success rate. The goal was to get the success rate up, but the emotional response was bad. And we had one, one user that he lived in Washington, in Seattle particularly, banked with a, a bank there called BECU, moved to Washington, D.C. There was no BECU branches in Washington, D.C., so he couldn't go into the branch. And he was trying to use remote deposit capture, and it was just having a problem for whatever reason. And he went on to the, the App Store review and just lit us up. And we're like, wow, people are really hot about this. So then we decide, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Maybe what we'll do is if instead of like auto capture only, we'll give somebody the ability to auto capture, but we'll put a little toggle at the top so they can click manual. And if they want to take a picture of it manually, they can. Now we know it's not really the best way to do it for success rates, but if for some reason the auto capture is not working in that one out of a hundred or two out of a hundred scenario, then we'll give them the manual capture. So we do that and we think, okay, this will, maybe this will solve the problem. So we go through this iteration and the success rate like goes really low. This is so weird. We have this great technology. Why is the success rate so low? So we dig into the data, of course, and we find that in our toggle button, the manual, you would hit manual, take the manual picture. And then the next time you came back, it was still on manual mode. And so they would take a manual picture again. And that's why the success rate went down. But the anger rate actually went down. Like people were okay with it. It's weird that it's not being as successful, but they're not as mad, which under this scenario they were. So we go back to the drawing board and we say, all right, let's take iteration three. Let's launch this out there. And we decide, okay, 
let's design the interface so that we'll take, it will automatically capture the image. But if we detect that for some reason something's not working, after three or four seconds, we'll let the manual capture button appear so that they have that option. So by default, we're really pushing them down the road for auto capture. But for whatever reason, we're handling the edge case that they can take manual capture of the check. And what we saw was our success rates, again, went through the roof and the anger rate came way down. And so we found that good mix, but it takes iteration to get there. And it's not always the first time that you're designing for something that, yes, the technology is going to win. It, it wasn't that. We really have to make sure in our metrics that we are looking at the emotional response. And for us, we were identifying anger here because we didn't want that. So a couple of results, and then we're going to open up for questions. What we found as a result of doing this over time, that we had roughly a 10%, overall 10% increase. It'll, I think I'll switch here in a second. A 10% increase in completed remote deposit capture. We went from 83% up to 93% deposit capture success rate. And with that, the application, what we started to see, the reviews were saying that Wow, they have really improved this app since inception. The check deposit function functions. And that was that thing that we find the most positive experience in the application that when this works, they are completely happy with everything. And a little pro tip that we learned this, since we learned this actually drives me crazy when I use applications. Have you ever gone on your phone and you open up an application? Maybe you've used the phone for a while. And the first thing they do is prompt you with rate this app. You see the stars there. That's the worst time, right? I think everybody knows that's the worst time. It still drives me crazy when I see that. But we found that in mobile banking, if we would prompt for a review right after they would do a, a remote deposit capture success, raving reviews. Now, when you're in other industries, we, we don't monetize in this way, but uh, great time to capture review, great time to ask them to do the next feature. Maybe there's an upsell portion to your application. Think strategically about these vectors of delight when you're going to ask someone to take the next step in your application and finding these moments where these moments where the rower tells me I'm at four minutes and 33 seconds and I'm actually emotionally positive. That's when we take the next step. And we found through that we could really drive adoption and satisfaction in the applications. BECU, the customer that I was referring to, what they ended up seeing is they doubled the mobile users that they were having. The word got out about how well this application was functioning and the adoption of mobile usage was just insane. Then they started increasing for us. We look at how many external accounts reach, almost tripled that. And, uh, and then they also had a 22% increase in check deposits under one way that they measure specifically. So I'm gonna open up for questions here in a minute, but I just, uh, really the message for today is there are these moments in your application that are seemingly small from a implementation and technology perspective, but they have a major impact to the users. And when you can start to design for these vectors of delight, we can really drive adoption and a relationship with the application. And if we can do that, we can impact a user's life. And for us, our mission is to empower the world to be financially strong. We wanna impact their life. We wanna help them with their finances. And we do this through creating vectors of delight. So 
with that, thank you for coming. We'll open up for questions. Yeah, I've got a mic here. We'll throw it around the room and take 10 or so minutes for some questions. How did you validate and more specifically, how did you quantify an emotional response? Really hard. So there's one of the challenging things with statistics that we look at is you have like a qualitative and you have quantitative aspects of it. And so we want to quantify that, but it's really hard. How do you actually quantify the fact that I loved my little rowing experience. No one's really going to know about it. I'm not the type of person that's going to write a review probably. And so it is challenging. What we found was that we would really rely on the qualitative aspect of the user reviews in the store. And we would expand that out and extrapolate it. Cause some, one of the time, one of the things that there's a challenge of, I think in product is that you want to build these cool products, but you work in a company that at least half of your company is focused on like revenue and, and profitability and like all this financial aspect. And you've got to somewhat create a business case to do these things. And that can be really challenging. So we really leaned heavy on sentiment analysis on the user reviews and doing it that way. And then, then really try to tell the story, uh, just like I did here that for every one person that actually makes the effort to give the review, there are dozens and dozens of people behind that are having that same experience. You just got someone triggered enough that would go on there and actually say it. Some of it is taking the quantitative side of the user reviews, the qualitative side of what they're saying, and then telling a story internally to that. I'll give you one from Morgan on Zoom. We've got almost 30 people joining us virtually as well. This is the first time we've done a hybrid product drive event, so pretty cool. This is from Morgan. Um, they say, I work for a startup and our client base is still relatively small and our product is not app-based. So we don't get any reviews. Survey responses are low. How would you recommend collecting customer data regarding how successfully you are designing the user experience? Sounds like it's a web application. It's not app-based. So I'm assuming it's a web application. So they're not getting like reviews from a review system. One of the things that, that uh, you can do is you don't have to use Apple or Google's review system. You can find these moments when they like complete some type of a task and just prompt them in the app for that. It doesn't need to be a you know, a third party necessarily that's, that has a whole framework and a system could prompt for a little of a quick star rating and a little comment box. Developers should be able to build that in less than a day. It's not very complicated, stored in a database, and then just manually mine the data, but solicit the feedback. Surveys are good, but they're challenging because the open and response rates tend to be pretty low. And so if you're just emailing out a survey and looking for a response over email, it's really tough. And you're generally not um, capturing the the feedback in the moment of highest emotion. And you can, if you want to juice your reviews, you can always do it when it's like positive, but I would suggest that if you're trying to get some good feedback, do it when something's wrong, instead of a 404 screen or a, a 500 error screen, modify that. So when they get an error, there's actually like some reviews, maybe don't publish those to the internet, but you get some reviews and get some feedback and really take that seriously. But oftentimes we think about what's the error page. We'll just throw up an error page. Maybe we try to make it cute so that they're not too mad, but there's always opportunities to elicit uh, feedback. And so uh, if I knew the application better, I could maybe give more specific feedback, but don't overthink. It's not really that hard to form with some stars and a little text box, maybe a half a day of work for an engineer. So.
Hopefully that helps, Morgan. Danny Bertolino. So I have a question around listening to user feedback. So I've been in the, the position in the past of working as a technical account manager and having frustrations with product and engineering before and them probably having frustrations with us. I think yep. it's just a uh, cycle that happens. And now, you know, working in product, I'm finding that we're getting really good user feedback and uh, user requests. And now it almost seems like I'm at a very small startup. It almost seems like at times we're building what the CEO and engineer wants and not listening to the user story, but the, the, the engineering story. And I understand the importance there, but how would you say is a good way to continue to, you know, try and encourage that, uh, to listen to that product feedback, listen to what our customers and users are saying while balancing. I'm finding my own ways, but curious to see any thoughts that you have on that. Yeah, so I, it's going to go maybe in a little different direction than you're expecting, but I can't overstate the importance of strong philosophy in a company and, and a shared philosophy, because there are going to be viewpoints that people hold that are different. Maybe your CEO was a really big fan of Henry Ford, and he's, you know what, if we asked our customers, they're going to say they want a faster force and we're not going to do faster horses. We're going to build cars. So we're going to decide what to do. And that's like his view of the world. Uh, you may talk to an engineer who has rapport with Bill Gates and Bill Gates says, you know what, the most, the best source of uh, product improvement is from your unhappy customers. So they're like, yeah, let's talk to the customers that are just like livid and let's really take that into consideration and let's do that. And some others may, there's going to be different philosophies out there. And if you don't have a shared philosophical understanding and a, a view of the world, it's going to be really hard. At, at MX, one of the things that's important for us is you'll hear it. In fact, we were just up at Sundance for two days doing an offsite with product and engineering. And 80% of the presentations were philosophical in nature because we have to have that shared understanding and a system of values that's important to us. And it's not necessarily a tactical answer to what your question, but it's more strategic in the sense that where you work, make sure that you're philosophically aligned with the company. And that's really important because there's this old adage that says, sometimes it's easier to give birth than to resurrect the dead. And if you can't find that philosophical jive, then maybe a change needs to happen. So I don't know the situation, but it's, it's fundamentally, that's really important. I would suggest persuade, tell stories, use the philosophy. That's, what, that's our approach. But some people resonate with it, some people don't. I'm interested about the images, the deposit images project that you guys worked on. I'm curious to know what was the total time frame, like from iteration one till iteration. I'm interested to know how many like user reviews you guys like looked into for each iteration. You understand yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Question. How fast was the iteration cycles between each of these, right? They're at, for us in a mobile application that we're doing with the bank, these are actually very long iteration cycles. We learned this over a long period of time. This wasn't like iteration one happened week one, week two, week three. This is much more on the vein of like quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, or quarters one and two, you know, it, it takes a long time to to build the app, release it to the app store. With banking, there's a lot of red tape in actually releasing a new application. So it, it did take us a good part of a year, multiple quarters, I would say, to go through these iteration cycles to get all that feedback. But you just, one of the things I think is important is that success is a result of consistent daily effort. And you just got to do it over the long term, like the grind day in and day out. And then you look back over a year, you're like, okay, wow, we accomplished something great. I can tell you the story and 
about three minutes, but this is a ton of work, big team, a lot of effort to get there. So it wasn't quick. Okay, thanks. I think we'll call this the last one. All right, and my project that I'm working on, I know that the anger rates for some of our users are going to be high with this new product, but I know the success rate's gonna be pretty high too. And I, we already have plans for lowering the anger rate over time, but how would you still balance that within the current iteration? Can you hold up a little bit? I didn't quite catch the question. Yeah, sorry. The oh, that's success a... rates are high, but the failure rates are also high? The anger rates. Oh, the anger rates are high. So right now I know that the anger rates are high and the success rates are pretty high. And we do have a plan in the future to reduce the anger rates, but how would you balance within the first iteration, that yeah. balance? Because you need to get the product out. Yeah. Wow. This goes, this could go deep. Sorry. Last question though. A couple of thoughts just on, on a few things you said. So one, being an engine, my background is in software engineering. That's where I come from. So science is generally more of like my, my default mode. And so really stating a hypothesis, going out and then testing it and iterating it through is the general pattern. But really sometimes in an organization, it's, it's hard to like really clearly state, this is our hypothesis. This is what we're going to do. This is the expected outcome and then show that. One thing that I think is really a challenging thing, this goes back to a little bit philosophical, it would, we could get in a very like uh, heated argument about this, but do you have an MVP and you release early, you release often, you ship it, you get it out there quick and you really go to market fast, which seems to be like the trend of the, the last while, or do you take the time to build a refined product and like refine and refine and refine and get it right? And that's hard because the general consensus, the general momentum today is, hey, get it out there quick. And you start influences like lean startup and, and uh, you know, agile, a little, little less on the agile side, but being agile in product and getting it out there is this tough. You take a look at Apple though, like Steve Jobs, they've worked on their stuff for a long time and they got it right. And it wasn't until real artist ship, if you go back to that story with Jobs, they had already been working on the project for two years and they hadn't shipped anything. And so he changed his whole approach with the team. And instead of having every little resistor on the board have to be absolutely perfect, they're like, okay, we got to ship. But that was after two years or more. So it's really hard because if it's not right, you got to be careful that don't let the, the trend of the day to sh um, ship early, shift often, get an MVP um, out there. Like I might get like booed off the stage for saying this, <laughs> off, but, but you just gotta be careful that sometimes the pendulum swings really far in philosophical approaches to building product. Be careful not to let it swing too far, but I'm happy to talk to you after a little bit and, and dive in more, but those are two things. Scientific method, make sure you understand the philosophy of how you're going to build products. And if you're going to release early and release often and an MVP, you're going to get negative feedback, but that's just the nature of the game and that's okay. A big thanks to Brett Allred for presenting, and again to Lucid for sponsoring the event. If you learned some things from Brett's talk, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter, and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.